The scripture reading for today's sermon is 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich men had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. And it it used to eat his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are that man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you much, much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for preserving your word, for giving us your word so that we might know the truth that leads to salvation. We thank you for your word that gives us light to our paths. And Holy Spirit, I just confess my complete dependence on you and confess our complete dependence on you. And we trust in you and we pray that you would work through your word, that you would bring conviction, that you would heal, that you would do whatever it is that you intend for your word to do this morning. We do pray that we would be changed by your grace from one degree to another for your glory and for the joy of everyone here. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you ever seen that really spoiled kid 
at the department store. The one who's really working his parent to get that toy that he wants. Maybe starts off by asking nicely, but when he doesn't get his request, it kind of escalates a little bit to a little bit more of a pleading. And as the parent futilely tries to reason with the child, reminding them of all the toys that he already has, but the child simply isn't interested in reason at that point. He just wants what he wants. And so the pleading escalates into demanding, and maybe the demanding turns into an all-out tantrum, kicking and screaming and all. Well, as adults, I think we can be just as ungrateful and discontent when we want something that we don't have. We're just usually a little bit better at hiding it, right? Isn't that true? Well, Thomas Swatson, the Puritan preacher from England in the 17th century, he wrote a book on contentment. And in it, he said this, and this should be on the screen. He said, contentment is of utmost importance. And until we have learned this, we have not learned to be Christians. It's a pretty bold statement. And whether or not you would agree with his statement, his assessment of contentment, or whether you've really given that much thought to the place of contentment in the life of the believer, it's my hope that God would use this message to help us to see the importance of contentment and that he would help us to see our discontent for the sin that it really is. After all, if contentment really is as significant as Watson states, then discontent is equally as serious. So listen to how Thomas Watson describes discontent. He says, Discontent is to the soul as a disease is to the body. Discontent is hereditary and no doubt is made worse by the many sad events and changes that have fallen out of late in the political realm. Yet, this disease is not to be excused because it is natural, but resisted because it is sinful. Discontentment is a disease to our soul. And I expect that we've all felt the effects of it at times in our life. That, we're, that we felt the pain of it, the, the uh, disease of discontent and how it troubles so much of our life and brings anxiety and other grief. I know I have. And I would agree with Thomas Watson on how significant and damaging discontentment is. Discontentment is essentially the belief that something must change for me to be happy. In reality, discontent is a rebellious heart that says to God, I refuse to be happy unless or until. It really is, I think, the complete opposite of what it means to be a Christian. After all, what is a Christian? A Christian is someone who has acknowledged that they're a sinner that deserves God's wrath. And they also acknowledge that instead of God's wrath, they've received God's mercy and have eternal life as his adopted son or daughter. So if that's what a Christian is, if that's what a Christian believes, then where does discontent fit into that equation? And so to be discontent really is at least to show in the moment that we are not believing in the gospel. 
Well, over the last few weeks in chapters 8, 9, and 10 of 2 Samuel, we've seen in significant ways how David was a foreshadow of Christ. We've seen him as a conquering king. We've seen him as a kind king. And we've seen him as a just king. David really was a great king in many ways. But what we see in chapters 11 and 12 is that though David was a great king, and though he was a foreshadow of Christ, 11 and 12 make it clear that he was not the Christ. There is only one perfect king, and David was not him. There's only one perfect hero in all of history. There's only one person in Scripture that's worthy of our worship. David was a great king, but he was not the king. Well, chapter 11 outlines the very familiar story of David and Bathsheba. Not only does it help us to see that Jesus is the only one worthy of our worship, but I think it's also a testimony to the truthfulness of Scripture that doesn't gloss over the negative aspects or the sinfulness of God's chosen people. In the beginning of chapter 11, verse 1, it says that it's springtime, the time for battle in that day, the time for men to go out and be men, to provide and to protect the people. But instead of going out with the men in battle, David is staying back, enjoying the many luxuries that his long-awaited kingship has given him. And so while Joab, the commander, and all the men are out at battle, it says that David got up from lying on his couch late in the afternoon and was enjoying a walk on the roof of the king's house or palace. And while he's walking, he sees a woman bathing on the roof of a house nearby. And it was likely easy for him to see as the king's house or palace would have been much larger. And so here we are at the edge of a great fall in David's life, probably his most well-known fall. And I think it's important to acknowledge from the start that great falls like this don't come out of nowhere. You often hear people that have um, fallen into significant sin, the response, well, it just happened. Well, in most cases, it doesn't just happen. And for David, it didn't just happen. As we know from the series in 2 Samuel, David had been sowing seeds for years now with regard to sexual sin. He had really trained himself for some time to enjoy women beyond the context of God's original design for sex. He had trained himself so that if he had a desire for a woman, that he simply took her as a wife or a concubine. I'm not sure that we even know how many wives and concubines David had at this time. Great falls don't come out of nowhere. But a little compromise always leads to a little more and a little more until all of the sudden there's a lot of compromise. But God's clear design for sex from the beginning before the fall was for one man and one woman through sex, to mysteriously become one flesh for life. It's clearly spelled out for us in Genesis 2.24. Jesus also reiterated it word for word in Matthew 19.5, and the Apostle Paul also does as well in Ephesians 5.31. Two becoming one. 
It's really a pretty simple formula, if you will. You don't need a scientific calculator to figure it out. One man, one woman, being joined together through a sexual union to become one flesh for life. As Jesus said when talking about divorce, it's only because of the hardness of man's heart that we don't get God's clear design for sex and marriage. Unfortunately, though, David had embraced the privileges so often enjoyed by the kings of that time and had gone far outside of God's bounds and design for sex. And so again, this well-known fall of David did not come out of nowhere. So here we have David walking, taking a stroll on his roof, seemingly innocent when he sees something he wants. He sees a beautiful woman bathing. And why she's bathing on the roof where she could be seen, I don't know. Some commentators, interestingly, are quick to condemn Bathsheba to point out that she was complicit in all of this. Other commentators are very uh, forceful to say that she had no part in this, that she had no guilt whatsoever. Whatever the case, what is clear is that the focus of the narrative is clearly on David. And regardless of the condition of Bathsheba's heart or her motives, David's sin was not excusable. After being aroused by Bathsheba, David inquires about her and is informed that she is the wife of Uriah, who we're going to see shortly is an extremely honorable man. But this doesn't seem to slow down David at all. He knows that the men are out at battle and Uriah is out at battle fighting with Israel's army, so David sends some of his men to fetch her and brings her to his room and we know what takes place. Sometime later, she sends word to the king that she's pregnant. Oh, how our sin will find us out. Our sin always has effects on ourselves and others, but sexual sin in particular has effects that are significant and lifelong in their effects. And while the main focus of this message actually isn't on sexual sin, I think it's important for us to use this portion of Scripture as a mirror, if you will, just to examine our own lives and the life of the church regarding sexual sin and sexual purity. While we may rightly and understandably think that it's tragic that a man of God would sin in this way, I just think we need to be careful not to do it self-righteously. You know, especially when we think of sexual sin, the church in our day is often not a beacon of righteousness. We may not have a We may not have leaders in the evangelical church that have multiple wives, but when we consider the amount of sexual sin, specifically through pornography, spiritual adultery that's in the church, including leaders in the church, which does at times lead to physical adultery, or when we think of supposed evangelical churches that are embracing homosexuality, I suppose we're not really in a position to heap too much scorn on David, at least not in a self-righteous way. As with David, having such quick and easy access, having such power to immediately gratify our sexual desires is very dangerous. I mean, think about it. All David had to do was say to his servants, hey, you know what? I'd like to have Bathsheba. And he had her just like that. And of course, we know that all we have to do is make a few clicks of the mouse. 
And so as with David, that ease and that access to sin is dangerous and is something that we need to reckon with. And as with David, our sexual sin also has severe consequences. So when we consider David's fall here, it may just be a reminder for us to take seriously the call upon each one of us, men and women, to strive all the more for sexual purity. If we're going to withstand the daily onslaught, and it is an onslaught, of the many sexual temptations in our culture, we have to fight. We've got to take up the armor of God. We've got to take action. We have to acknowledge that we're in a war. And we need to help each other. We need to be open with our struggles. We need to stop sowing seeds of lust that will eventually bear bitter fruit. We need to be the ones to talk about sexuality with our kids. We need to uphold the sacredness of sex in our sexuality. We need to uphold the value of modesty and the honor of true beauty that is mainly inward. We ought to continue to lift up God's wonderful gift of marriage as he intended it to be. And so I just pray that God would help us to see the many ways or whatever ways there are that our hyper-sexualized culture has infected our own hearts. And as, a, and as a church, may God truly make us a beacon of light with regards to purity. Well, back to David. Hearing that she's pregnant, he knows that he's got a problem. But instead of coming clean with his sin at this point, Instead of being repentant, David instead hardens his heart and he makes up his mind to do whatever it takes to solve the problem in his own strength. Sin is always blinding and always has a hardening effect. And unless and until we truly repent of it, we will remain self-deceived and only further hardened. Well, David's heart was hardened and he set out to do whatever it took to cover it up. In verse 6, we see plan A, if you will. He calls Uriah back from the battle in hopes that he would go home to his wife and have sex with her. And the idea, of course, would be that Uriah would then think that the baby was his. Simple enough, right? Of course, Bathsheba would also have to join in on the deception for it to work. Again, how complicit she was or whether she just feared the king, we don't know. But unfortunately for David, Uriah is too principled of a man to enjoy his wife while the other men are out at battle, while the other men are sleeping in tents on the battlefield. So instead, Uriah spends the night with the servants at the entrance of the king's house. So the next day, David invites Uriah back into his home again and gets him drunk so that he would be more likely to go home and enjoy his wife. But even intoxicated, Uriah is too principled to go home and enjoy his wife and spends the night again with the king's servants. I mean, can you feel the hand of God pressing against David here? But David's heart was hardened. And since, his success, since he was not successful in his, deception, in his attempt to deceive, he goes to plan B. And we see, unfortunately, just how hard his heart has really become. David writes a message to Joab, the commander of the army, to have Uriah put in the front line of the battle 
and then to withdraw the troops so that Uriah would be killed. On top of the heinousness of this, I don't know if you've realized this, it was the first time as I was reading this and it really struck me, he gives the message to Uriah to bring to Joab. It's just mind-boggling. So here you have Uriah, an upright man, carrying his own death sentence to Joab, the commander. I mean, sure, David would have known that Uriah had too much integrity to actually look at the letter on the way, and I would expect it was sealed in some way. So Uriah here, an upright man, unknowingly is carrying his own undeserved death sentence to Joab, the commander of the army, and he had done nothing wrong. It really is disheartening to have a front row seat to see David at his worst, isn't it? It really is hard to see how hard-hearted and blinded he was at this point. I expect that many of us here know how saddening it is to see someone, especially someone close to us, someone that we love that has become hardened by sin, someone that is blinded to the seriousness of their sin and blind to the hurt that their sin is causing to others. I spent three years of my life from ages 15 to 18 becoming more and more hardened by my sin and by the deceitfulness of my sin to the point that I didn't care a lick how much I was hurting people around me. I was only concerned with enjoying the sinful pleasures that had grown to enslave me and that's all I could see. As much as it grieves us to see someone close to us that's hardened by sin, I think we need to recognize it's no comparison to how much it grieves our Heavenly Father. Well, David's second plan succeeds and Uriah is killed in in battle. Really, he's murdered. After grieving, Bathsheba becomes David's wife. Problem solved. At least that was likely what David thought. But you'll see in the last sentence of chapter 11 a very small sentence that shows us that David's problem was very much not solved. A little sentence that says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You know, oftentimes Old Testament narrative just states the facts, just states what happens without specifically giving God's perspective on it, without specifically saying whether God condoned what was being done or not. And sometimes, from my perspective, it's frustratingly so. You read some of the narrative and you go, is God okay with this? What, what is going on here? But much of the Old Testament is simply telling us a story, telling us truthfully what had happened. So oftentimes we need to use other portions of Scripture to help us to see God's perspective on it. But here, there's no ambiguity. What David had done was not condone. God was not okay with what God had done. And so in chapter 12, we see God sends the prophet Nathan to confront the king. And you'll remember if you are here that Sunday a few weeks back that the last time Nathan came to David was in chapter 7. And when he did, he came with a prophecy, with promises that were so amazing that were literally, as we learned, were a mountain peak, not in David's life, but in the entirety of salvation history In that message that Nathan brought David, it likely brought David to his knees in awe and in gratefulness. And I can't help but wonder here, this next time now that David sees Nathan approaching, that his heart is warmed 
that he's excited to see Nathan, his good brother, to hear what Nathan may have to say to him from the Lord. Well, like the most skilled biblical counselor and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Nathan comes to David. And as Brian read for us, Nathan, instead of just immediately calling out David for his sin, he actually draws David in with a story that didn't seem to have anything to do with him. And as David is drawn into the story, right, you could tell he's, he's just starting to just rise with this righteous indignation, and he's, he's drawn into it more and more and gets to the point of literally declaring judgment on this rich man in Nathan's story. Nathan tells David that he is the man in the story. And clearly this caught David off guard and was like a knife in the heart. In contrast to Nathan's first message that brought David to his knees in awe and thankfulness, this message was crushing, and rightfully so. Up to this point, David had hardened his heart, but now, through the word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, David's heart was broken. So let's look again at Nathan's words in chapter 12. I want us to consider how Nathan goes first to the heart of David's sin, instead of just his outward actions. So after telling David the story of the rich man abusing the poor man, Nathan explains the story in verse 7. This should be on the screen as well if you don't have a Bible. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? The reason I said earlier that the main focus of this message isn't on sexual sin is because it doesn't seem to be the main point that the Lord makes when Nathan confronts David. If I could paraphrase a little it's here, it's like he's saying, are you kidding me, David? Are you kidding me? After all that I have done for you, after all that I have given you, After all that I have promised you, is this how you show your gratefulness, David, by despising my word? Are you kidding me? So instead of going right to the specific outward sins that David had committed, Nathan begins by going to the heart of David's sin. I believe that the main force of Nathan's rebuke was on David's outrageous lack of contentment with all that God had given him and all that God had promised him, David should have been the most content person in the world. Well, if you look at verse 13, you'll see that David does receive Nathan's words and acknowledges that he's guilty. And immediately, Nathan assures David that God has put away his sin and that he is forgiven. Isn't that amazing? God doesn't demand any acts of penance. 
He doesn't say that with how greatly David sinned, that he had to sacrifice a million bulls or do 50,000 Hail Marys or anything of the sort. God doesn't even demand that David never sin again. David received God's assessment of his sin, of his discontent, of his adultery and his murder and acknowledged that he was guilty. And God responded by taking away his sin. And we know from Romans 3.25 that God was only able to take away David's sin because God saw a day in the future when Jesus Christ would bear the punishment for David's adultery and murder and discontent. Well, we're able to see much more clearly how much this confrontation really affected David's heart in Psalm 21. Asa read an excerpt from that, and and if you want to see the condition of David's heart at this point, read through Psalm 51, which he wrote after this, and we see that he clearly was a repentant man, and he was truly contrite and brokenhearted. Though God did forgive David's sin, it did not mean that there would not still be consequences. In Nathan's words, we also see that even though David is forgiven, his sin is still going to bring some significant consequences. In verse 11, we see that evil will arise out of David's own house. And in verse 14, we see, that God's, we see God's discipline with him taking the life of the baby that had been conceived. I think the lesson that we can take from this is that though God will forgive us of our sins when we confess them and acknowledge them, it does not mean that God will remove all the consequences of our sin. Often, I think, in his grace, he does remove many of the consequences of our sin, but he also allows many of the consequences as loving discipline in our lives. Though God's discipline was severe, although far less than David deserved, God was also incredibly merciful. In fact, the extent of God's mercy is literally mind-boggling. Look now, if you will, at, uh, cha- at verse 24 of chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 24. It says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Not only did God forgive David and spare his life, God actually chose Bathsheba to give birth to Solomon. God was still going to be faithful to his promise to establish a throne of David And the messianic line would actually continue through the offspring of Bathsheba, through Solomon. I mean, on the surface to me, it almost seems scandalous of God to do this. But God's promises are not dependent on the goodness of man. But even at this point in history, God's choice was based on Christ fulfilling man's side of the covenant of grace. And it is Amazing grace, isn't it? So at the same time that we see God's sobering discipline, we also see incredible grace. 
And I think that if we're willing to see it, that this is our reality as well. That though God does bring difficult trials in our life, though that there are, though there are painful um, consequences to our sin, that at the same time, God is also incredibly gracious and is always treating us far better than we deserve. So what about us? Where are we at in the spectrum of being content or discontent with the circumstances of our life? I mean, it's easy for us to see how much reason David had to be content and how dishonoring it really was to God that he wasn't content with all that God had blessed him with, right? I mean, of course, David was king. He had just amazing power and privileges and luxuries and wealth and blessing. And as Charlie preached to us a few weeks back, God had given him such unimaginable promises. Of course, David should have been content. Well, of course, when we're discontent, we always feel that we have good reason for it, right? Don't we? We all feel that we're justified when we're discontent. But is that really the case? Or do we not have as much reason as David to be content? And you're thinking, really, Jordan? Seriously? Isn't that a bit of a stretch? I mean, he was king. None of us are king. None of us rule this land and have endless luxuries at our fingertips and have whatever we want when we want it. But I would not only argue that we have as much reason as King David to be content, I might dare to say that we have more. And so in closing, I just want us to consider that if we are in Christ by faith, that we have great reason to be content. Which also implies that our discontent is equally as sinful as David's. I don't want to minimize at the same time the real and significant trials that anyone here may be going through. I understand that being content at times can be extremely difficult. I also think it's important for us to recognize that contentment isn't merely a superficial happiness. I mean, think about it. Jesus was perfectly content, but he wasn't always happy, was he? I mean, we saw him righteously angry. We know that Jesus wept with pain in his heart. So contentment is not a superficial happiness, but it's an abiding satisfaction and gratefulness for God's grace in our lives, even when, the midst, when we are in the midst of a difficult trial or season of life. The content soul acknowledges that though there is pain and suffering, the greater reality is that our sins have been forgiven. A soul that is content gladly submits to God's ways and can always say with sincerity that God is good. So consider with me some of the reasons we have to be content. As believers, we have become recipients of all the blessings of the new covenant. The Holy Spirit has called us, drawn us to himself, and caused us to be born again. The Holy Spirit has taken away our natural heart of stone that does not love God or his ways and has given us a heart of flesh 
that knows God and loves God. No longer does God dwell in a tabernacle or a temple, but God, the Holy Spirit, literally dwells inside of our heart. As believers, we have the Holy Spirit as a seal that guarantees that we will inherit full salvation, that guarantees that God will never leave us or forsake us, but with certainty will complete the work that he has begun in us. In Christ, we know that God is working all things together for our good. And if all things, if everything is working for our good, what do we have to be discontent about? Through Christ, we have been made God's beloved sons and daughters. And if God is for us, who can be against us? We could go on and on. We often talk about the now and not yet aspects of our salvation, right? Well, there's much of our salvation that we do experience now, but there's a lot of it that we wait for, right? That we long for, that we'll know only when we see Jesus face to face and we long for that day. And while at this point in salvation history, we see, as it says, through a mirror or through a glass dimly, in comparison, David barely had a piece of glass to look through. All these blessings that we have in Christ are, of course, on top of all the common grace in our lives, such as prosperity and physical blessings that are also undeserved. So how are you doing with contentment? What would the prophet of God say to us about our contentment or our discontent? I just want to say a quick word to anyone here that maybe hasn't experienced the contentment that comes through faith in Christ. If you don't know that you're a sinner and don't believe that Jesus paid for your sins, then really you don't have a reason to be truly content. And whatever it is in your life that you're pursuing to find contentment simply won't work. The only way for us to be truly content, to have an abiding contentment, is to trust in Christ and to have a relationship with our Heavenly Father day by day through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would truly give us eyes to see this morning and day by day all the reasons that we have to be content. I pray that we would be affected by the reality of all that you have done for us in Christ. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would work in our hearts to bring conviction. I pray that if anyone of us is hardened in any way by our sin, that you would break through, that you would cause us to be broken, that you would give us a heart of flesh. Jesus, I thank you for all that you have done. Please help me, help us to honor you with content lives. In Jesus' name, amen.